I'm Vanessa Pritchard. Welcome to this podcast from Keep Believing Ministries. Today's message was given by Dr. Ray Pritchard. At Keep Believing Ministries, we want to encourage and equip people to keep believing in Jesus. You can find us online at www.keepbelieving.com. Stay tuned for this special podcast. My text tonight is 1 Samuel 24. The story goes something like this. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the region of En Gedi. Saul gathered 3,000 choice young men, great fighters, fit young men. We would say today, special forces, the best of the best. 3,000 fit young men, great soldiers, and set out with those 3,000 soldiers to find David and his men by the rocks of the wild goats. And when he came to the sheep pens by the side of the road, there's a cave there. He went into the cave to relieve himself, not knowing that David and his band of desperados were way back in the recesses of the cave. He didn't see them. They saw him. David's men said to him, Behold, is this not the day the Lord spoke of when he said, I will give your enemy into your hand so that you may do to him whatever you desire? Only one problem. Those desperados were not graduates of Moody Bible Institute. There's no place in the Bible where that verse is found except right here in 1 Samuel 24, verse 4. Either they are just making it up, which I think is the most likely explanation, or, or maybe a prophet somewhere sort of off the record has said that, and they are misapplying it to this situation. So take a note. When you are tired, when you are scared, when you are angry, you are not thinking clearly. When you're tired, your impulse control goes away. When you're afraid, your adrenaline takes over. When you're angry, that testosterone starts to rise. That's a bad combination. Take a note. Take a note. When you are tired and afraid and angry and it's about time you got even with the people who are coming at you, you can always find a Bible verse. If context doesn't matter, if exegesis doesn't matter, if hermeneutics doesn't matter, you can always find a verse 
to justify anything you want to do. But, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. I want to say something on behalf of David's men. Saul has gone off the rocker. He's been off the rocker for a long time. Saul's already been rejected by the Lord, filled with anger, rage, and envy, and jealousy. He turned against David. He threw the spears at David. He ran him out of the house. He ran him into the desert. And for days, and weeks, and months, and years, Saul has been coming after David. And I'll tell you what, you get tired after a while of being chased. You get tired after a while of somebody attacking you. You get tired after a while of people turning against you. You get tired after a while of being cornered in the back of a cave. And Saul, you know, I don't really blame him. I really don't. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. God, here's the seductive part. God has already said David is going to be king. He's already said that. Saul's going down. David's going up. So you understand what the men are saying? They're saying, David, while Saul does his business, you go up there and do your business. Grab that sharp knife. Cut him seven ways from Sunday. Cut him. Fillet him. Kill him. He had already beheaded Goliath. Cut him down. Why? Because you'll be doing God's will. Watch out now. Watch out. You can quote the Bible. You can claim it's God's will. Be a million miles away from God's will. But wait a minute. I do understand. Saul's already been rejected. You know, the great victory of David and Goliath That's where we usually end the story. But you know, when Goliath fell, suddenly those scared Israelite soldiers came boiling over the edge of the Eli Valley. And and the Philistine army started running. And the Israelis came after them. And it was a slaughter. Talk about shooting fish in a barrel. Killed them left, killed them right. Killed them all the way down to the gates of Gath and Ekron. And, and you remember... When the victorious Jewish army came back, the women began to sing a two-line song. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. It's not that first line that gets you in trouble. It's that second line. Look, look, if you can kill 10, you're a good soldier. If you can kill 50, you're famous. If you can kill 100, you're legendary. If you can kill 500, you're in the Hall of Fame. If you can kill 1,000, we're going to put you up on Mount Rushmore. And Saul had killed thousands. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's even more to this story. Saul is one of the most enigmatic characters in all the Bible. You guys, you've never preached on Saul. You ought to because you'll not get it all done in one sermon. There's a whole lot going on there. I mean, when he was good, he was really good. But you know, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. And what, what, what rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. But, but the Bible says several times the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. And for that matter, he was tall, handsome, good looking. He was a great leader. And he led the people of God to military victories one after another after another. So I'm saying when Saul heard the women say, Uh, Saul has slain his thousands. That was cool until they got to the second line. But David, his what? Tens of thousands. And the text says in 1 Samuel 18 that Saul, well, in, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, Saul eyed David. He eyed. He eyed him with jealousy. 
He eyed him with anger. He eyed him with malice. He kept his eye on David because he saw in that young man, he must have known, here is the one who is going to take my place. So I guess, I guess what I'm saying to you tonight is this. Look, I don't blame those guys a bit. Not a bit. I don't blame them for saying, go up there and kill Saul because when you are tired, when you are afraid, when you're angry, you aren't thinking straight, you make bad decisions. So the text says that David crept up unnoticed. Saul's doing his business. Creeps up unnoticed. Clips off the edge of Saul's robe. Comes back. And the men expect him to come back and say, I killed him. He holds up the corner of the robe. No doubt disappointing them. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. The text says, well, I I suppose I should say it this way. Saul's robe was the robe of kingship. It was the robe of authority. I mean, you may say to yourself, that's just a prank. No, 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 no. That's spiritual vandalism. Cutting off the corner of Saul's robe was the first step to murder. You know how I know that? Because pretty soon David's going to say, See, my father, I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. And when he got back, well, your modern translations say something like this. They say, uh, David was grieved. His heart was stricken. He felt guilty. He felt sorry. But uh, I like what Mr. John Nelson Darby did when he translated 1890, the Darby translation of the Old Testament. When Mr. Darby gave us that, he agreed with King James and the other older versions. Literal, literal. The text says, David's heart smote him, smote him. His heart rose up and slapped him in the face and said, who are you? Why did you do that? Don't you know better than to do that? How dare you think you can go up and cut off the corner of the king's robe? Which is why David, deeply convicted of what he had done, turned to his men and he said, the Lord forbid that I should do this against my master and the Lord's anointed or raise my hand against the anointed of the Lord. And with those words, he subdued his men and would not let them attack Saul, who left the cave blissfully unaware of what has just happened and goes on his way. Very soon, David goes to the mouth of the cave. Saul is away from the cave, but he's still within earshot. And he calls out to the king, my Lord, the king. Saul turns back. When he turns back, David is kneeling in respect with his face to the ground. And David says, why do you listen when men say, David is intent on harming you? This very day, you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave Some of my men wanted to kill you, but I would not let them. I said, I will not lift my hand against the anointed of the Lord. See, my father, see, I am holding your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I 
did not kill you. Now think about this. Study it and understand. I'm not guilty of of rebellion. I'm not guilty of wrongdoing. I've done you no wrong, but you are seeking me to destroy my life. Now, may the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me of what you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, out of evil doers come evil things, but my hand will not touch you. You're the king of Israel, the king. What did you come out here for? Why are you out here in the desert? What are you looking for? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be the judge and the arbiter between you and me. May the Lord look favorably upon me. May the Lord show his kindness to me and vindicate me by delivering me from your hands. The Bible says that when David finished speaking, Saul spoke up and he said, Is that you, David, my son? He wept aloud. He knew. He knew, you are more righteous than I, for you have treated me well, but I have treated me badly. Just now, just now, you have told me, you have shown me the good that you did to me when the Lord delivered me into your hand, and you did not kill me. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes the surest proof of your godliness is what you don't do. Sometimes the surest proof of your Christ-like character is what you don't say. Sometimes the real proof of your spiritual maturity is you don't do what you could do and you don't say what you could say. You say, I want to be like Jesus who, like a lamb before the shears, he opened not his mouth. When reviled, he reviled not again. When insulted, he did not return. And when they hit him, he didn't hit And Saul said, when a man has his enemy in his own hands, does he let him go free? The answer is no, but David did. And he said, may the Lord reward you for your kindness to me. And then all important, all important, Saul said, now I know you will be king. Hugely important. He's never said that before. He's never said that out loud. He's never admitted he is going down and David will ascend to the throne. But now he admits it. Now I know you will be king. The kingdom of Israel will prosper in your hands. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. You understand what's happening here? David was a multi-talented man. But it was not his military prowess that convinced Saul. It was not his beautiful music that convinced Saul. It was not any of his preaching that convinced Saul. Not his military stuff that convinced Saul. You know what convinced Saul? The generosity and grace-filled kindness of his heart. All that other stuff wouldn't convince Saul. But when he saw the grace that David showed, he said, now I understand. You are going to be the king and he said, swear to me before the Lord, you won't cut off my descendants or wipe out my, my name from my father's family, meaning I know I'm going down soon. I just want you to take care of my descendants. The last verse of the chapter says, says uh, and David swore an oath. And Saul went home. And the last phrase says, David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, 
A lot of Bible commentators say that's Masada. It could have been. But if you've ever been down by En Gedi and the, and the Dead Sea and, and southern Judea, you know, that is a wild wilderness to this day. There's hidden valleys in there. There's a lot of caves in there. So maybe it was Masada, but it was one of the strongholds. You ask the question, look, if this story has a happy ending, why is he going up to the stronghold? I'll tell you why. Because David understood Saul's mercurial temperament. He understood the new Saul today is wonderful. The old Saul could come back at any time, which in 1 Samuel 26 is exactly what happened. I haven't given you the title of my sermon. Let me now give it to you. I want you to write it down. I want to talk to you tonight for a little bit about how to survive your critics. And all God's men said, oh, brother, here we go. Don't you write that down, how to survive your critics. The operative word is survive. I am not tonight preaching on how to outwit your critics. Don't know how to do that. I am not preaching on how to defeat your critics. Don't know how to do that. I am not preaching on how to get rid of your critics. I sure don't know how to do that. I'm talking to you about how to survive the critics you face in your everyday ministry for the Lord. I have been in the ministry now, I guess, about 45 years thereabouts. Nearly all of it spent inside the local church. I come to you tonight as someone who loves the ministry, loves the local church. And I just observe for you tonight, when it's good, it's really good. And when it's bad... Oh, brother. And it's kind of shocking how fast that can change from one to the other. I mean, from Sunday to Sunday, from Sunday morning to Sunday night, how quickly things can change inside the local church. Now, I'm speaking to pastors and missionaries and Christian workers tonight who have known how difficult it is to serve the Lord. You know what I know? I don't know all of you, or even most of you, but I know that some of you tonight have come crawling off the battlefield to this conference. I know some of you have come to this conference beaten and bruised and bloodied, not at the hands of the unsaved, but at the hands of the people of God. You have suffered. You've suffered. Maybe no one else here knows about it, but you are here tonight wondering what the future holds. And and I'll bet, I'll bet there are a few of you here tonight, just a few, who have your cell phone in your pocket and you dread that vibration in your pocket because it might be from the chairman of your elder board telling you, hope you're having a good time in Chicago. Why don't you just stay there? Life can be brutal. There's no fight like a church fight, right? You know, the first rule of knife fighting There are no rules. Well, so it is in many churches. You know, we all spend time in the cauldron of controversy. It gets hot. You don't know what to do. Everybody here tonight is in one of three places. You're either in the cauldron or you're just coming out of the cauldron or you're about to go back in it. You just don't know it yet. 
So let me tell you what I want you to do. This, I hope, is a practical sermon. I want you to get whatever you can out of what I say. I want you to take it and fold it up. Then I want you to put it right back here in your back pocket, right back here. I want you to keep it because if you don't need this sermon today, you're probably going to need it tomorrow. And if you don't need it tomorrow, you're definitely going to need it the day after tomorrow. Having said that, sit back and relax. (laughs) Because I'm going to tell you a story, all right, which will explain something. It was late one night. And I was sitting next to the phone. I had been instructed by the chairman of the elder board to be by the phone. The elders were meeting that night. I always met with them. But the chairman, who was my friend, said, Ray, you don't need to come tonight. It uh, won't do you any good. There was only one item on the agenda tonight. That night was me. Some of the elders had decided I should take my ministry and go somewhere else. They had forced a vote that night. Though that was over 30 years ago, I I can remember it, I can feel it, and I can see it. You know, that was the end of of two years of controversy. There was a new church, and I was the first pastor, and the church had grown, and families had come in, and people had gotten saved, and they had been baptized, and and God was doing amazing things. And for a while there in that new church, it just seemed like it, it seemed like we could do no wrong. Even when we messed up, the church kept growing, you know. We were just, this is a beautiful thing there. And then, you know, nothing like that can last forever. You know where the controversy started two years earlier? Crackers and juice in the nursery. Say what? Crackers and juice in the nursery. Because we'd had a little bit of, little bit of trouble over here, and we were redoing the finances, and I don't know, crackers and juice. And, and some people got really upset and really hot and really bothered and began to talk about it. And, and, and now listen to me. You who have experience already know the answer to this question. When a problem like that, as crazy as it might seem, when a problem like that is not dealt with biblically, where is it going to end? Where? It's going to end on the pastor's desk. It took about two years to get there. And that controversy had morphed and had mutated and it had changed directions, and it had invaded a good part of the con, uh, congregation so that by the time the elders met that Tuesday night, they'd forgotten all about crackers and juice in the nursery. That didn't even come up, but that is where it started. But it ended with me. The chairman of the elder board called me late that night, and he said, Ray, the vote was four to two. I didn't understand then what I understand now. I was so tired. I was so scared. And I was certainly so angry. I wasn't thinking clearly. I was so burned out and worn out. I honestly that night didn't know whether I wanted it to be four to two for me or four to two against me. It was four to two for me which meant I had to stay. 
So that very night, the two elders, the two elders who led the charge, resigned from the elder board, resigned from the church, and by the, by the following Sunday had taken their families and all of their supporting friends, and they had left that brand new church never to return, and it spread throughout the congregation. And so the elders who were left behind wrote a letter, and, and I have a lot of sympathy because in the years since then I've been on the other side of that letter-writing thing, and, and they wrote a letter to the congregation, and it was of necessity, it was kind of ambiguous, and something had happened, and you really couldn't tell what had happened from that letter. It's just hard to say that kind of stuff. And so we began to get phone calls and emails from people. Pastor Ray, Marlene, what's going on? What happened? And even some of you, what did you do? Hmm. You know how I felt? I felt slimed. I felt slimed. I felt as if somebody had reached down to the bottom of the pit and had just covered my body with slime. I felt Like if I went outdoors, my neighbors were talking about me. They weren't. But that's what happens when you are tired and you are scared and you are angry. And I went to the grocery store and I felt like everybody was whispering about me down the bakery aisle. They weren't. But that's what happens when you are tired and you are scared and you are angry. And I went to the bank and I thought everybody was talking. And nobody was. But that's what you think when you are tired and you are scared and you are angry. I I probably should just say this the right way. You know why they wanted me gone? It had nothing to do with my doctrine. I was more fundamental than they were. Nothing about preaching the gospel because I preached the gospel. It was none of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. He I mean, they didn't say he's not above reproach. They never said he's not the husband of one wife. They didn't say he's drinking too much wine. They didn't say he lacks respect and he's intemperate or can't teach. Nothing like that. And, and they didn't say he's got his hand in the till. And thank God, they didn't say there's a moral issue. Because there was no moral issue. You know what that really meant was? They were just tired of me. Hmm. Hmm. You ever been there? They're just tired of you. They were tired of looking at me. They were tired of listening to me. They were tired of following me. And they just didn't like me and didn't want me as their pastor anymore. Yeah, wow. What what, what are you going to do then? What what are you going to do with that? That's a personal rejection. I want to say two things about that. (laughs) That whole year, kind of a blur in my mind now. Wow. That was the worst year of my ministry, I guess. I've had some bad ones, a few. (laughs) Is that probably the worst? When they just say, we're tired of you. There's no answer to that. When When they say, we don't want to look at you anymore. There's no answer to that. When they just say, get out. There's no answer for that. That's total personal rejection. Now, I know what Romans 8, 28 says. I do know it. But I'll tell you, as I was going through it, I didn't see anything good happen at all. I want to say a second thing. I think in many ways now, that's probably the best year of my ministry. They were right. It took me a long time to say that. I wouldn't say it then. 
but they were right. They, maybe not what they said, maybe not in the way they said it, and God's going to have to judge their motives. But you know what? Early success in the ministry is dangerous. It's dangerous. It makes you think you know more than you do. It makes you think you're further along than you really are. Remember what Bill Gates said. Success is a lousy teacher. It makes smart people think they can do no wrong. And that church is going so well. Looking back, I didn't even know what I didn't know. And I think maybe my ministry really began on that Tuesday night over 30 years ago. And what happened that night and the pain afterwards was a severe mercy from God. Let me put it to you this way. Let me tell you something, folks. There is nothing better for the soul than a cold splash of reality right in the face. It's like that camp trick, you know, when somebody's sleeping and you get the big thing of cold water and you pour it on their face. Don't look at me. You've done that. You know, right on their face. And they wake up yelling and screaming and saying all kind of stuff, but they're awake. Let me tell you something. When you get that cold splash of reality, it wipes away all those stupid excuses. When you get that cold splash of reality, it wipes away all the self-justification. When you, when you get that cold splash of reality, it clears out the cobwebs and you realize, you realize what a mess your life really is. Nothing's better than a cold, it's no fun. Oh, it's no fun. But what a good thing to find out the truth about yourself. And you may say to me, you may say to me, well, fine, fine. Why'd you tell that story? I'll tell you why. Because that fall, that fall, I was preaching through the life of David. That elder meeting was on Tuesday night. And the following Sunday, in the sovereign, predestined, foreordained plan of God, I was scheduled to preach on 1 Samuel 24. I've had 30 years to think about the deeper meaning of this text. I really only have one question. It's not a question for you. It's a question for David. David, why didn't you kill him? Why didn't you kill him? Your men wanted you. You would have been king. David, you had your... David, he's been chasing you from pillar to post. He sent the whole army out into the desert, running around the mountain trying to catch you. Saul's gone nuts. Take him out. Why didn't you do it? I find three answers in the text. Number one, he didn't do it because he respected Saul's authority. He said, he called him, my lord, the king. He said, God forbid that I should raise my hand against the Lord and his anointed. Look, if any man ever had a reason to get even, it was Saul. If any man ever had a reason to make him pay, it was, it was David. If any man ever had a reason to seek revenge, it was, David, do the world a favor and take him out. It's God's will. You're going to be king. God's already said that. Who put Saul on the throne? But he's gone nuts. 
He's still God's man. He's crazy. He's still God's man. He's gone over the hill. He's still God's man. Who's keeping him in power? God is. Who's going to take him down when the time is right? God is. I don't want to overgeneralize this point, but I want to say this. For David, that man, the king to be, facing the man who was on the throne, for David to take Saul out would be a direct attack on God. And David would not do that. There's the second reason he wouldn't do it. That's because he was willing to wait for God to vindicate him. He says at the end of his speech, now may the Lord judge between, well, now may the Lord be the judge and the arbiter. He uses two different words. It's like he's saying, all right, fine. Let's get the big table down here. Let's get the Lord Almighty down in the middle. And Saul, you get over there and you spout your nonsense. And I'll get over here and I'll say God's truth. And we'll let the Lord Almighty be the decider. May the Lord be the one to decide. Wait a minute. Write this down. Write this down. Write this down. God is better at revenge than we are. And write this down. We stink at revenge. We stink at it too fast, too slow, too hard, too soft. We swing the sword, and there's too much collateral damage. We're no good at it. Look, if God wants Saul off the throne, he's got a million ways to take him off, right? He doesn't need David's help. Mark it down, friends. God doesn't need your help. Are you aware of that? That's the truth now. God doesn't need your help. He was doing good as God before any of us came along. He's doing fine tonight. If all of us drop dead tonight, he's still going to be fine as the sovereign of the universe. James Russell Lowell said, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. But that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. I wonder, do we really believe that? I think the answer here, why David didn't, he had a big God, why he didn't seek revenge, he had a big God. He had really good God-centered theology. He had the big God of the Bible. Now, I'm going to say what I'm about to say in a way that none of us would ever say it. All right, I understand this. But look, I've been there, I know how it is. And everything's going good. When you got money in the bank, when the building program was a success, when you've added to the staff, when the elders are actually glad to see you, when you get along with the worship leader, and there's peace in the women's ministry, and peace in the men's ministry, and peace in the Sunday school, and peace in the small group, and there's happiness inside the local church, and you're building your ministry, and you've got your social platform, and you're preaching and writing, and you're building your kingdom for the kingdom of God. It's easy to feel like you don't even need God at all. Let me tell you something. If all you have is a God of the good times, you do not have the God of the Bible. What are you going to do when the vote's 4-2 to two against you? What are you going to do 
when there's a social media storm and you see your name showing up on Twitter and Facebook, what are you going to do when you get death threats on the phone? What are you going to do when they set up a website to get you out of the pastorate? And and, and said another way, what are you going to do when when your son is arrested? What are you going to do when your unmarried daughter turns up pregnant? What are you going to do when your wife walks out on you? What are you going to do when your church explodes? I say it again, if all you have is a God of the good times, you do not have the God of the Bible. David had the great big God of the Bible. So let me say it to you. Gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, get get that God. Get him now. Get that big God now because you're going to need him later. It's a little bit late when you were in the cauldron and it's bubbling. It's a little bit late. When you were on the battlefield and the arrows are flying left and right and you're bleeding from a dozen wounds, it's a little bit late to pull down A.W. Tozer and think you can find some inspiration. You better do that now. You better get the big God now because you will need him later. I'll tell you the verse that encourages me. Job 23.10. He knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That's the furnace, the furnace. Put the gold ore in, turn up the heat, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up until you can't stand it. Turn it up some more. And then the dross begins to melt. Only thing that's left is the gold. I'll tell you this, I'll just tell you this personally. Look, when I'm in the middle, and I have been there, when I am in the furnace, and the the, the temperature just keeps getting turned up and turned up, uh, I I know there's gold coming, but that's not what I can think about. You know what I know what encourages me? First two words, he knows. He knows where I am. He knows how I got here. He knows how long I need to be here. He knows that I will not stay in the furnace of affliction one second longer than I need to. He knows. He sees. He remembers. My friends, you can take that to the bank. So number one, David would not seek revenge because he respected Saul's authority. Number two, he was willing to wait for God to vindicate him. Number three, because he did not want to seek down, sink down to Saul's level. He says, as the old saying goes, out of the evildoer comes evil things. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Saul was messed up on the outside because he was messed up on the inside. He was not so on the outside because he lost it on the inside. David is saying, Saul, you can live down there in the slime pit if you want to, but I am not going down there with you. You know what they say, never wrestle with a pig. You only get dirty and the pig loves it. So I saw this, friends come and go, but enemies accumulate. All God's men said, you got that right. Somebody else said, if you want to be free of criticism, the ministry is a bad place to be. That's right. Rick Warren said, most pastors leave their churches because of seven or fewer people. I don't know where Rick got that. I don't know of any survey, but I'll tell you what. That actually fits everything I've seen and heard and experienced. You can have nearly everybody in the congregation for you, but only two or three people in strategic places. They decide they don't want you. They can bring your ministry down to a grinding halt, a grinding halt. So here's the question, what are we supposed to do with all this? I mean, look, look, what do you do? do? 
when the chairman of the elder board says, we don't need you here anymore. What do you do when you get emails saying, we're tired of your ministry. We want something else. What do you do when you're threatened and your wife is threatened? What do you do when people you thought, what do you do when people you disciple turn against you? Let me give you three suggestions. What do we do with the pain and the sadness and the criticism that comes sometimes in the local church? Number one, admit your part in it. Admit your part in it. You're not as good as you think you are, and neither am I. You're not as smart as you think you are, and neither am I. You're not as strong as you think you are, and neither am I. You're not as clever as you think you are, neither am I. Remember what Spurgeon said, don't get mad at your critics. You're far worse than they know. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Like the song says, it's me. It's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And we will never get better. Never. We'll never get better. We'll never become God's men. God's, we will never become what God wants until we get that cold splash of reality and face the truth about ourselves. Admit your part in it. Number two, thank God for it. Thank God. Thank God for what? Those emails? Those death threats, the brick through the window, the ugly messages left on voicemail. Look, here's all I know is this. This where some good sovereignty of God theology has got to get us through. Gentlemen, ladies, do we understand? Do you understand? Your enemies could not come to you without God's permission. They couldn't touch you without God's permission. If, if Satan couldn't touch Job without God's permission, if Satan couldn't tempt Peter without Jesus' permission, your enemies couldn't touch you without the permission of Almighty God. They couldn't even take another breath without the permission of Almighty God. So understand, they cannot come to you apart from God's permission. Somebody said in every life, God puts Broadly considered, this makes perfect sense to me. In every life, God puts in the circle of your acquaintances over a whole lifetime, everybody you need for your own spiritual growth. He'll put a Cain and an Abel. He'll put an Abraham and a Lot. Over there's Joseph, and here's his conniving brothers. Here comes Moses, there's Balaam riding on a donkey. Here's Joshua, and there's Achan lying through his teeth. Here's Ruth. Over there is Jezebel. Here's Daniel who stood against the world and Demas who loved the world. Here's James and John, the sons of thunder. And here's shaky Peter. And there's Judas who betrayed the Lord. They're all part of God's plan to make you the man of God you were supposed to be. So I just say this. If tonight, if tonight you have some honest-to-goodness critics, let me tell you what you do. Let me tell you what you do. When you go home, Get a picture of your critics and put it up on your bulletin board. Right next to your missionary prayer letters and pictures of your grandkids so you can remember to pray for and thank God for the critics in your life because they are part of God's plan to sanctify you. There's the third thing. We got to admit our part in it. We got to thank God for it. And third, we got to forget about it. Whoa. Forget about it? Forget well. 
What I mean is, let go of the anger. Bring the burden of it to the Lord. Let go of the bitterness. Let go of the desire for revenge. Do you know the name F.B. Meyer? I bet all of you do. F.B. Meyer, great Bible teacher, contemporary of Spurgeon, great friend of Mr. Moody. Here at, here at, back when it was the Moody Cole Portage Bible Publishing Association, we published one of F.B. Meyer's early books in about 1900 or 1901. Wrote a lot of books. All of them are great. I found this. Listen, F.B. Meyer said we make the mistake in always trying to clear ourselves. We would be wiser to go straight on, humbly doing the next thing, trusting God to vindicate us. There may come hours in our lives when we shall be misunderstood, slandered, falsely accused. At such times, it is very difficult not to act on the policy of the men around us in the world. They at once appeal to law and force and public opinion. But the believer takes his case to a higher court and lays it before his God. You know what I like about that quote? Well, all of it. But the part I really like is that last part. His God. His, not God. His God. We have a friend in high places. We got a counselor. We got a witness. We got an advocate. We got a lawyer on high who has never lost a case. And he's the son of the judge. We couldn't be in better shape tonight. One other thing, and I just say this quickly, 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 quickly. When you are in the cauldron of controversy, watch your words, watch your words, watch your words, watch your words. You don't get any free words anymore. You don't get any cheap comments anymore. You don't get any quick comebacks anymore. You know what the problem is? The problem is we preachers, we get paid to talk. I mean, we talk and we talk and we talk and we talk. We talk all night. That's what we're trained to do. And it's easy to think in times of trouble that we can just talk our way out of trouble. Watch your words. And especially watch social media. But you've got some snappy comeback to somebody who said something snarky about you. Grab your hand and pull it back. If you think it, don't say it. If you say it, don't write it. If you write it, don't be surprised. <laughs> well, you folks have listened to me long time tonight. I appreciate that. I want to throw down two or three other things. We're just going to be done here. But write this down. Good theology can save your life. Not just your soul, not just wipe away your sins, but good theology can save your life. First Peter 4, 8, love one another fervently means stretching out like an outfielder, stretching to catch a, a fly ball on the warning track or like a running back stretching for the end zone to break the plane of the goal line. Love one another with a stretched out kind of love. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Let me tell you something. If your ministry is going to succeed, you're going to have to cover a multitude of sins. You're going to have to be willing to forgive and forgive. Be quick to forgive the stupid things people say and do. Be quick to forgive. Ephesians 4.32 
Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. When Dr. Honer wrote his massive treatise on Ephesians, he came to this verse 432, and Dr. Honer said that this word translated forgive is not the normal Greek word. It's another one. It means to, it means to pour out grace. And he said it's okay to translate it to forgive. It's just fine. But understand it means forgiveness that comes from the grace of God, just as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Whole Christian life in six words, from God to us to others, from God to us to others, from God to us to others, the goodness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the forgiveness of God, the long-suffering of God, the forbearance of God, all of it comes down to us in a tidal wave of grace. So take that, take what God has done to you, and let it flow out from you to the people who wish you were somewhere else. Two questions. Question one, how much do we really want to be like Jesus? Mm-hmm. I didn't ask you, do you want to be? Because we all know the answer to that. We know the right answer. How much? Did Jesus have critics? What did they do to him? What? What did they do to him? They crucified him. You thought you were going to get off easy? You thought he'd make a special exception in your case? We all talk about a love Jesus and want to follow Jesus. It's kind of like the Benham brothers say, following Jesus looks like fun until you find out where he's going. He's always going to the same place. He's going to the cross. In 1957, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. He was well-known then, but not as well-known in 57 as he would be in years later. In April of 1957 at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Dr. King preached a sermon called Loving Your Enemies. When he came to the end of that sermon, he said, there's a little tree on a little hill on the other side of the world. And on that tree hangs the most influential man who ever lived. And in that man hanging on that tree, love has broken through. Now we know what love looks like in a world of hatred, prejudice, and discrimination. Now we know what love looks like in a world of betrayal and broken promises. Now we know what love looks like in a world of murder and violence. And Dr. King said, love is the only way. It's the only way to live. It's the only way to die. It's the only way to go to heaven. He was surely right about that. But it's not our love. It's the love of Jesus. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love or sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Last question. Why are we in this? Why are we in this? Why are we doing what we do? Listen, if your ministry is just about you, if it's about you and your sermons 
and your church and your reputation and your platform. If it's all about you, go ahead and kill Saul. Because that's the way of the world. But your ministry is not about you. Your sermons are not about you. Your career is not about you. Your reputation is not about you. It's all about God to the glory and praise of God. It's not about me. It's not about now. It's all about God. It's all about eternity. A while back, when I started this sermon, I told you the title, How to Survive Your Critics. Not how to outwit them. I don't know. Not how to defeat them. I don't know. Not how to get rid of them. I sure don't know about that. I don't know how to survive them. Listen, listen, listen. Some of you tonight are hiding in the back of the cave, beaten and bruised and bloodied, attacked over and over again by the people of God, people you thought you could trust. And Saul has come into your cave. What will you do? What will you do? And your friends whisper, kill him, kill him, kill him. You know what he did. Make him suffer. Make him pay. And inside, that's what you want to do. And the voice of the Holy Spirit whispers to you, go and do for him what Christ has done for you. My friends, we're going to live with criticism until the day we die. The only question is, how will we respond? And the voice of the dying Son of God calls across the centuries, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the whole message right there. Forgive them. Because when you forgive your critics, you have already survive them. Let's pray. Lord, what are we going to do? Lord, what are we going to do? Lord, we hear this and we know we cannot do it without you. It seems so impossible. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight in agony, in agony. Oh, Send your Holy Spirit. Deliver us all from anger. Deliver us from envy. Deliver us from bitterness. Deliver us from revenge. And give us a new vision of the dying Son of God who forgave us while we were yet sinners. So help us go from this place with a new love and a new commitment to forgive and forgive and forgive, to do for others as Jesus has done for us. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. 
This podcast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. Come see us on the internet at www.keepbelieving.com. We'd love to hear from you this week. Join us for the next podcast from Keep Believing Ministries.